reading is from 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Hear now God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil, We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sorrel, for reading God's Word to us today. Uh, It's a joy to be with you. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name's Darren, uh, one of the pastors here, and we are continuing uh, through the book of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica really to encourage them in the faith and to exhort them to live holy lives with future hope as they await for Jesus to return. And so last week, we saw him open by giving thanks to God uh, for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their endurance of hope. And the, the thing that he uh, shapes his prayer really does reveal his priorities. What is it that Paul prioritized in this church? Well, it came out through his thanksgiving and by implication for us to both pray for, give thanks for in others, and also by God's grace live out in our lives. And we'll see through the rest of 1 Thessalonians, Paul essentially unpack this work of faith, labor of love, and hope of endurance. Now this week, he kind of moves from the genuine marks of a Christian or a true believer uh, to the genuine marks of a gospel minister. Uh, Paul is both giving a defense of his ministry and really a presentation of a true gospel minister or a true pastor. Um, Isn't it true that if uh, a leader's reputation is compromised, uh, the message that they proclaim can also be compromised? It was hard work for Scott Morrison to recover uh, the good faith from many Australians when he was hounded by media and the opposition for taking a holiday during significant bushfires. Now, what is true in the world is also most certainly true in the church. When a leader, when a leader um, fails to live out privately what they preach and teach publicly, I think the damage can be quite devastating for all those involved. It can leave people confused. 
How did this happen? Angry, perhaps, that they've been betrayed? Could even cause some to doubt their faith in God. I think with the rise of access to global news, I think we're more aware than ever of the number of leaders whose character and conduct hasn't lined up with their message. Perhaps you're visiting today and maybe you're part of, uh, maybe part of your understanding of Christianity is that its leaders are hypocrites. At least some of them are. In fact, part of the church history, that has been certainly true. For some, but not most. Most church leaders, Christian leaders, you don't hear about. They're living unremarkable lives in unknown places, doing ordinary work that goes unnoticed. Praise God for that. Yet such ministers too may face slander, or gossip, lies, false accusations that seek to erode their character, question their ministry, and by implication end up, in, um, by implication end up undermining the message of Christianity. See, if you undermine the messenger, you can undermine the message. That seems to be what's happening that Paul is addressing in chapter 2. The content of this passage seems to indicate a context that the messenger Paul and his missionary buddies and his message, the gospel, were being called into question by some. You see, Paul, uh, if you recall, him and his team had, had left Thessalonica on quite sudden terms, hounded out by the leaders, leaving at nighttime. There was a riot that had broken out in the city, and they'd fled. They had to leave. And Paul himself had not yet come back. And so maybe you're a believer in Thessalonica. You've heard this message. It's changed your life. You're a four-week-old Christian, and you've raised the question, where's our leader gone? Has he left us? Is he coming back? Does he love us? Does he care for us? Well, the content of this passage seems to indicate more than just the people's personal concerns, for we know they thought rather highly of Paul. In fact, given the solemnness of Paul's tone in this chapter, where he invokes God as witness on several occasions, it is in fact most likely that the disgruntled Jews and the citizens in Thessalonica were kind of calling into question Paul's character, calling into question his motives. We see that in verse 2, 14, the fellow citizens were afflicting the church. So you can imagine them saying to this church, oh, that guy, Paul, listen, he doesn't love you. The first sign of trouble and what happens? He left. He's a fraud. He's a phony. He's just like all the other traveling speakers. Pay him no attention. You see, if people could undermine the messenger, they could undermine the message. Paul will not have that. Paul's concern in this passage is not so much for his personal reputation as it is for the reputation of the gospel. That is what is at stake. So as we see his defense this morning, it's going to reveal the true marks of a gospel minister. And we'll notice it first through uh, true motivation for ministry. That's verses 1 to 6. And then we'll look at their manner of ministry, verses 7 to 12. So firstly then, their motivations. Paul begins his defense by saying that his motives were not self-seeking. 
And he grounds this, um, firstly, by asking the church to, to call upon their personal experience. He kind of says, hey, fellas, you know. See that phrase? For you yourselves know. That phrase, in other variety of forms, comes up about six times in this passage. It says, you know. Here, verse 2, as you know, verse 5, as you know, verse 9, for you remember, verse 10, you are witnesses, verse 11, for you know how. Paul's saying, you heard us, you saw us, you were there, you understand. You know better than to believe any lies that may be being spread. The implication of this, of course, is that how did the church know? How did this church know about Paul's conduct and character? Well, I think it's because Paul's ministry amongst them was one that was close, not disconnected. See, Paul and his companions were shepherds who were among the sheep. They didn't remain in their studies, step out through the green room, present the talk, only to retreat back, never to be with the people. They weren't aloof from the activities of life together. Friends, a true gospel minister is amongst the people. This was true of Paul's time together, and it was true of um, Paul's entrance to Thessalonica. Look at how he came. And and as you look at this, notice, Paul, three times in this passage, is going to give a, we didn't do this, but we did this. Not this, but this. So the first one, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So as Paul is presenting a defense of himself and his ministry, he's also kind of pointing out the kind of false ministers or the false characteristics you should be avoiding. I think that's the implication. Steer clear of these things. Steer clear of those with self-serving motives. Paul's motives weren't self-serving. See, to to have come in vain would have been to come with empty words and empty results. I think character and results can't be so easily uh, separated. For if Paul did come with nothing, it would have produced nothing. But Paul came with what? Do you remember from last week? With power and with the Holy Spirit and with much conviction. He didn't come with pretense. He wasn't a sham, an empty shell. He came with a true message that had a true impact, producing repentance and converts. So if people ask, was Paul a a self-serving religious fraud? Well, far from it. Paul expresses, you know that how I endured much affliction in Philippi, You understand that even as I preached in Thessalonica, there was affliction, but I kept preaching. I kind of picture Paul at this moment with a black eye and a bruised arm, sporting the the wounds of when he was stripped, when he was whipped, his feet perhaps still having the graze of the shackles as he was locked up in prison, and he's come to preach the same message. Some might have thought, if he's a genuine, got anything worth saying, why has his ministry been such a failure? Some might have thought, Paul, if you're really real, why did you leave us? Well, Paul says, hey, I it wasn't the difficulty here. I'm happy to preach in that. And he did. He preached. 
since they already knew that he'd suffered before, yet keep preaching even whilst he was suffering now, they could trust that his motives were not self-serving. They were costly. So firstly, Paul's motives were not self-serving. And secondly, neither were they people-pleasing. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. For just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not just to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. Paul wasn't on a crusade fueled by fake news. He wasn't offering faulty hope by luring people in with a bait and switch. His appeal to receive Jesus as Lord wasn't driven from some impure motives or desires. No, his proclamation of the truth, as one writer says, was to preach a message of heaven. Sorry, his message was not to preach a message of heaven that would lead people to hell. No, he preached truth. He wasn't trying to trick people with the false message they wanted to hear. Rather, he was entrusted with the true message that God wanted people to hear. This is God's message after all, isn't it? Paul is simply being entrusted with it. Like a, a parent entrusting their children with a, a babysitter. So, so God entrusts his most precious message about his most precious son, his life and death and resurrection to Paul, and Paul proclaims that message. God has tried them, God has tested them and approved them. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's been approved, he's been tested. Now, it's worth noting for a moment that Paul and his missionary friends had been sent by the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem Council had sent them on this missionary endeavor. They, had a, they were sent by the church with all God's authority to proclaim the gospel. Acts 15 tells us that. So Paul was neither self-appointed in isolation from God, but neither was he appointed by God in isolation from the church. Both those two things were brought together. And that's the kind of normative biblical pattern of ministers, approved by God, appointed by the church to please God, not man. And so Paul ministers here. It would go to figure then, if it was God who did the approving, then it would be God's approval that Paul would be seeking. He's not looking to, for the approval of the people here. He's already got the approval of God. He's already been commissioned, given authority to go and preach. That's why he's not people-pleasing. After all, people can't really see into the heart, can they? We may, all of us at different times, question the motives of people around us, but we don't truly know. It won't fully be laid bare until the final day. But Paul here brings, brings God as his witness because it is God who tests the heart. People may get his heart wrong, but God never will. So it's God's pleasure that he was seeking. Paul lived, as I think it was Os Guinness who said, I live before the audience of one. Before others, I have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove. Paul might have served people, but he didn't live to serve people. Right? He lived in the service of God. He lived for the audience of one. Paul's motivations are not self-serving. They are not people-pleasing. See, when you're trying to win and please people, you kind of say the things that they want to hear. But when you're trying to please God, you say the things that God wants to hear. 
Friends, I'd have you know that that shapes what we do as a church, what we believe is a church. We want to put God's words before you as clearly and without any kind of tainting as possible. That shapes how we gather as a church. Here, shapes our activities as a church. We love you enough not to try and submit to pleasing what you think would be best. You and us as elders sit under the authority of God's word to see what is pleasing to him. And that is where we want to calibrate our hearts. Paul's not self-serving. Paul is not people-pleasing. This is why Paul didn't come with words of flattery, right? He, he's not coming to, to puff the people up in order to manipulate them and to get something out of them. Maybe his motivations, thirdly then, are not glory-seeking. Verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as an apostle. So Kent Hughes says, gossip is, involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face. Flattery means saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. Well, since the Thessalonians knew this, they knew once again as you know, I imagine when accusations started flying against Paul, I could picture the, how the conversation might have gone with an early church member. Someone says, that Paul guy, he was just trying to flatter you. He was just trying to make you feel all good to get stuff from you. And they replied, well, that's a strange form of flattery. Hearing our sinful condition wasn't flattering. It was fateful. Paul didn't try and distort our spiritual state. Rather, he described it. I'm not sure if they taught that in how to win friends and influence people. But I can tell you, we weren't flattered. But we were flawed. Flawed beyond your wildest dreams. Both by our sin and flawed by the amazing grace of God. They knew this, Paul said. Paul's preaching was not a mask for amassing from them. It wasn't a front for greed. He wasn't asking them to pay a $10 fee and so get the blessing if they just send it the money now. He wasn't asking them to use a hook in order to get a gospel giving part in the service every week where you would be moved in order to fleecing out your pockets to line the minister. That wasn't Paul. No, no, he knows he doesn't have these motives. They know he doesn't have these motives. For he even invokes here, again, God as witness. Do you see that? Calling God as witness. Verse 5. It's safe to say that in court cases, different expert witnesses are brought. An expert witness in, uh, can be brought for anything. Um, I had a friend who... Uh, involved with acoustic treatment, and he's an expert in sound and how sound travels, and he's been brought in to, you know, talk about and testify to how sound travels. And, well, what witness is Paul brought in here? He's brought God the witness, and I don't know if you know much about God, but he is an expert in truth. He does not lie. He is not swayed by others. He is honorable. He even knows a person's heart. (laughs) 
sees all the way in. And Paul invokes God as a witness to his motives. If Paul wasn't confident that he would stand before God as witness, then his actions here would be utterly foolish, for he would be utterly exposed. And he'd also be blaspheming against God himself. And Paul uses God as witness. Why? Because he's confident by grace that he's been faithful. His motives are not impure. It was God's glory he was after. He wasn't people's. I remember being startled one time by a preacher I heard during a sermon say, I'm preaching better than you're responding. Now, I don't know if it was cultural or not, but I just can't picture Paul just looking out, waiting on the praise of people. He already had the praise of God. It was his glory he was seeking. Paul wasn't trying to take from them glory, but rather give to them. I think this is why you'll see Paul's ministry here is focused more on his, more on their responsibility rather than authority. Did you notice that he says, we did not make demands, though we, oh, sorry, though we could have made demands as apostles. So we know from 1 Corinthians 9 that, that Paul as an apostle had every right to, to make a, to claim financial support for ministry in the gospel. A kind of financial support that he in fact receives during his ministry in Thessalonia for a portion, but it's not sufficient, and so he gets to work tent making. In fact, his tent making side hustle seems to only be present when it serves his context in ministry, when the people in that community would be better served by him not taking from them, but rather serving them working with his hands. But when finances are more flush, what does Paul do? He puts down the tools and devotes his time entirely to word and prayer. Friends, Paul and his team weren't thinking so highly of themselves so as to gain from this church, but rather to give to them. And that meant working to support the ministry. When it comes to a, gospel's motiv- a gospel minister's motivation, we see that they are not self-serving. They are not people-pleasing. And they are not glory-seeking. And listen, when, don't you think when that's a person's motives, does that not open you up more to receive their message? when you know that that person has your best interest. I'm thankful for many of the pastors and ministers I know that are like this. Just humble, godly men, eager to serve people, not with mixed motives. I'm thankful for gospel workers involved in a variety of missionary and ministry forms. Think of Griffith Christian students and the men and women on that team sacrificing dearly Their goal isn't to get, but rather to give. These are the signs of a true gospel minister. May we be encouraged. May we encourage those who we hear and see living out his characteristics. So that's Paul's motivations. Secondly now, let's look at Paul's manner. True manner of a gospel minister is both compassionate and compelling. It's both compassionate and compelling. Look at verse 7. For we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Far from being authoritarian, what was Paul and his team like? 
They were gentle. And here the imagery that Paul picks up on is that of a nursing mother taking care of her children. And I think the imagery is, is quite perfect. And I think every mother um, who's experienced motherhood would agree in this metaphor there is both tender affection and burdensome work. Paul and his buddies weren't some hired help taking care of someone else's children. No, taking care of them, treating them like their very own with tender care. What this church needed was the gospel and the way they needed it was through them sharing and pouring out their lives. Like a mother who in giving the child the nourishment of milk cannot but give of herself. A child needs a hand to hold whilst the work of parenting is holding out the gospel. It's tendersome and burdensome work. Attending to the cries for milk, holding close when feeling scared, getting late, um, getting up late at night several times, constant care. That's what the apostles were like. They didn't throw their weight around, but rather they tried to alleviate the burden on this, on this church. Paul and his team ministered in part what they were ready to share in whole, their whole selves. Verse 8 was particularly impressed upon me um, early as I was studying in Bible college. I moved to Ashgrove Baptist, and my dear friend Dan Patterson would regularly, regularly share this scripture with me, both as a philosophy of ministry and how he sought to live his life as a, as a minister of the gospel, and also what he aspired for me as a young pastor in training. The manner of a Christian minister is not like a distant uni lecturer who gives truths without giving themselves. Rather, their ministry is personal. Paul's language here of being affectionately desirous may strike you as a bit strange. It's a high chance you haven't described anyone this week or any of your feelings towards someone as being affectionately desirous for them. In fact, it's so uncommon that it's, it's not really kind of used elsewhere. It's so rare. Elsewhere, it's used to describe a parent's longing for a son who died. That's the intensity of this. Paul longed for this church like that. They were so dear to them because they were so dear to God, beloved by him, considered family by Paul. I think one of the reasons I, I think some pastors struggle to spend time with their people is because they aren't filled with affection for them. And they aren't filled with affection for them because they are forgetful of how much affection God has for them. Can't help but wonder if many pastoral interviews would be sharpened, but not only asking, how do you plan to preach to the people, but how do you plan to be affectionately desirous of the congregation? And this relational dynamic, doesn't it infer to be reciprocal? That affections wouldn't remain a one-way street, but rather would be mutually enjoyed? And that was the case in Thessalonica. Timothy gets the report and reports to Paul. They remembered them kindly and longed to see them. That is the relational dynamic that happens in a church. By God's grace, ought to be. You know, I'm so thankful for these fellow elders who often remain at the end of services here to talk and listen and pray with anyone. The men here who open their homes to help people gather around God's Word, to, to set tables for conversations about the things of life. Though seasons may differ and availability and accessibility at times may change, 
If you notice Paul's word, we, it's not just Paul, it's we, the whole team. The intention was collectively to be affectionately desirous and share their lives with the church. And by God's grace, the, the elders here, we collectively want to live this out faithfully to love and serve you. To ask away. Our lives are here and open, open Bibles, open homes to share with you. I think this is a good pattern, not only for pastors to uh, live out, but particularly then for Christians. As we, in Christian ministry, seek to minister the gospel to one another, the example that is set ought to then be what? Imitated. And so we want to not just share the gospel with people, but our very lives as well. And so I think this means two things. We, we don't want to be relationally heavy, but gospel light. Neither do we want to be gospel heavy, but relationally light. We, we want both those things to keep together. So, so in our times of fellowship or in our gospel community, we don't want you to go deep into the study, but kind of swim in the shallows as you connect with people. But neither do we want you going scuba diving into each other's lives, but then when it gets to the Bible conversation part, kind of freeze up because we're not sure how to talk. We need to be open and share both. Now, each of us will have different proclivities here. Some of you will be more geared to the social and you'll be hard to keep quiet. And others of you will have to learn how to engage with people socially, not just theologically. But God's grace lean both ways. We don't want to be socially heavy and light on the gospel. Neither do we want to be heavy on the gospel and relationally light. We long for both. We want to grow together in both. This makes me ask the question, um, of being known here, if, if Paul's desire was to share not only the gospel but his life as well, ready to share, how are we going and sharing our lives with one another? Being known by people, there is a responsibility on one another to know each other and listen, there is a responsibility to be known. May we know God, be known and may the gospel known to one another and the world. So his manner we see was compassionate, like a nurturing mother. Secondly, notice that his, his manner was also compelling, like a father. You are witnesses, verse 10, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." The example that was set and the reason for what they witnessed is connected to what he says in verse 11. So he's, verse 10 is, you saw this. Verse 11 is, well, how did you see it? Well, they saw it because Paul was amongst them, compelling and exhorting them through godly instruction. So we've got godly example and godly instruction. How was his manner compelling? Firstly, because he had a, gave them a godly example. By the way he lived, verse 10, it's so vital that our character does match our conduct and our conduct does match our creed. I recall a pastor who just, in a desire to make sure that his private life and his public life was always in line, one of the rhythms he developed with his family was just asking his wife and kids each week, is there any way that I've sinned against you this week that I haven't yet confessed? Is there anything daddy is doing that's dishonoring to you or this family? What wife would not want to hear her husband ask that? 
What children, as they grow, would not want to hear dad say, son, daughter, if there be anything that I've wronged you this week, please let me know. I'm eager to walk out repentance. What a, why was this pastor doing that? Is because he wanted to set an example to his family and he knew the way he shaped and lived in his family would work out to his ministry in the church. Both of them mattered. He wanted continuity. I think that's seeking to live holy life, lives, righteousness and blameless. My friend and pastor, Will Ross, he, he said these characteristics in a minister's life won't be perfect, but they ought to be present. They be perfect in these things, but they must be present. They must be present to affirm the word that's being announced. So once again, Paul now asks them, the Thessalonians, and God himself to step in the witness box. We shouldn't just move past this again too quickly because this is really setting up the foundation for Paul's defense. So he brings them and the cross-examination begins. And you can imagine the accusers saying to them, weren't these men here problematic and perverse? And the church members considered the example that Paul and Silas and Timothy and said, Your Honor, these were holy men set apart for God. They were righteous men. They lived according to God's standard. You may even consider them as blameless men. If any of these accusations you're putting forth is quite nonsense. Well, they set an example. And their example extended to their exhortation. See, gospel ministers' words ought to be both compassionate and compelling, encouraging and exhorting. We want to help teach and instruct people on how to live the Christian life, on what the Christian life looks like, clarity through God's word to bear upon lives so as to make the gospel and God more clear. Paul says to them, hey, Thessalonian church, now that you're not walking with idols, here's how you walk with God. Now, that's a bit of an adjustment. If you've ever had an injury and for a period of time had to either use an apparatus or crutches or something to learn how to walk, returning just to walking again can be a change. What about people who've lived a completely different walk? They've got to kind of learn all that again. What they needed now was both fatherly exhortation and motherly care. Can you see how both these characteristics are necessary for a gospel minister? We don't want one without the other. You don't want someone so nice and caring and lovely that they'll never tell you true words. And neither do you want someone who's always exhorting you and putting pressure on you and being harsh with you without being tender and compassionate. The gospel minister needs both. Paul and his team brought this exhortation to them. Notice his exhortation wasn't to do what you feel is best. (laughs) Paul didn't have kind of pastoral catch-ups to help them be their true self, help them fulfill their plans and dreams. No, no, he came to help them walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul had no low standard or cultural expectation upon these people. You notice the manner of life that he's wanting them to work, walk? Worthy of what? Worthy of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the standard that true gospel ministers will put before you to walk and live in a manner that is worthy of God. 
the great and glorious king, the ruler and reigner of all, the sinless and perfected one. Walk in a manner worthy of him. Walk in a way that your life makes sense of God and his gospel message, which is a life of what? Repentance, coming again to drink from the fountain of grace and letting grace get to work in your life so you walk in obedience to him. It takes both encouragement and exhortations, words to build you up when you're feeling down and words to push you forward when you're sitting still. How many of you know that you've got some words that have helped encourage you but you've been sitting still and you actually needed someone to prod you. And if you're not aware of what they are, by God's grace, you'll be introduced to them over time. Because all of us at times need a little bit of a prod forward, not just an encouraging word. Well, friends, what is true of, again for gospel ministers is true by extension for one another. Any ministry that we seek to have amongst here, the church, other fellow Christians, all believers, is going to require these two things, encouragement, exhortation, compassion, and being compelling. Hebrews 13.3 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Catch what the author of Hebrews is saying. Exhort one another how often? As long as it's called today. What is today? Today is called today. What do you need today? You need to be exhorted. Why? So you don't harden your heart. What does my brother and sister need Monday morning? What's Monday? Monday is a day. What is gonna face them today on Monday? The temptation to harden their heart against God and be deceived by sin. What do they need? Oh, brother and sister, they need to be exhorted to go another day so they're not deceived by sin. What happens Tuesday? Tuesday. Tuesday is uh, formal sports uniform day. Okay, it's formal sports uniform day for the kids. What's Tuesday? Tuesday is catch up with uh, this group of people. Okay, Tuesday's that day. But you know what else today, Tuesday is, everybody? Tuesday is another day that the brothers and sisters in this church are going to be tempted to be deceived by, by sin. What do they need from you and I? They need to be exhorted to press on another day. Do you know how joyful it is if we would be exhorting one another daily just to keep going, keep following Jesus? You're doing great. Praise God. Keep enjoying God's word together. Oh, as friends, we would do this. Exhort one another. So Paul's doing. He's coming alongside, exhorting and teaching. And by extension, the church is walking this out. We need godly examples and we need godly exhortation. I think one minister who lived this out faithfully was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a minister who not only wanted to help people live well, we want them to die well. Just as he sought to live a worthy life, he wanted to die a worthy death. Listen to this excerpt from an article in 2020. In the final days of Lloyd-Jones' sickness, his weakness was so severe that his voice had left him entirely. When his doctor attempted to increase his medication, Martin Lloyd-Jones refused, and when the doctor insisted upon the medication to relieve his sadness, Lloyd-Jones burst forth, not sad, not sad. While sitting with his wife Elizabeth in those final days of speechlessness, Jones pointed his wife to the scriptures and directed her attention to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When his beloved wife asked if there was, this was his experience, he nodded his head with certainty. February 6, he wrote on a scrap piece of paper, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory. 
For much of his life, Jones preached the hope of glory with power. But in the end, he himself modelled what it looked like to face death in the hope of glory. Here is a gospel minister whose manner of life was worthy of God and a worthy example. And he encouraged people to walk in a way worthy of God. For such are those who God calls into his own kingdom and glory. That's the final verse there. It is a call that began from eternity past. It is a call now present and active in the life of believers. And it is a call into eternity where those who are loved by God, chosen by him, will live under the reign of God and share in his divine glory. That is the final resting place for all who believe. And friends, that is a life worth walking out now. This is a life that Paul reminds these Thessalonians that they saw in the ministers. True motives, true signs of a gospel minister, not self-serving, not people-pleasing, not glory-seeking, and a godly manner that is both compelling and compassionate, setting forth example in both speech and manner of life. Now, you may have the right motives in ministry. You may have the right manner and the right method. But if you don't have the right message, none of it matters, right? And so next week... We'll see in verse 13 that Paul is going to talk about the right message he had, a message which the Thessalonians received as the Word of God. See, a person or a minister can be sincere in loving you, but they can be sincerely wrong. They can come alongside you, maybe even help you along in life, but they may not ever get you on the narrow road. The message matters. So our prayer today is that this may all be true and present in the life of the gospel ministers here. That they won't be perfect, but by God's grace, these characteristics ought to be present. And that since gospel ministers and pastors here set an example, that each of us, by grace, would seek to imitate these characteristics in your life as you seek to minister to one another. Isn't it true that you would just love if other people were ministering to you in this way? Not trying to take from you, but give to you being compassionate when you need compassion, being compelling when you need compelling. That's the prayer in the heart we have. And the last implication from this passage is this. I think it's a simple truth that if these characteristics that Paul has mentioned here are true and are present in a gospel minister or in a pastor of a church, alongside obviously the qualifications from 1 Timothy and Titus, then we should receive their leadership as a gift from God without placing unbiblical burdens on them to be any more than what God has made them to be. Not every pastor will be as equally gifted as another pastor, and especially not as gifted as those who write the books we read or speak on the podcasts we listen to. If a minister's motives are pure and his methods are loving and his manner is clear, then give thanks to God for them. And do not expect more of him than what God has provided for you. Such qualities, look for such qualities upon the occasion that if you ever were to move from this church, that they would be the marks that you would look for in another church, in the church's ministers. 
and then let those qualities be on the lookout for those amongst us who God would gift to this church as more elders, as more gospel ministers are raised up. And may these qualities inform your prayers for the leaders here. Would you pray for our godliness, our holy character? Would you pray that we would walk and you would see the fruit of the Spirit, that we as we shepherd the flock would be both compassionate and compelling? with clear exhortation, through bold proclamation, as we counsel in people's lives, not to try and please people, but to ultimately please God. We as elders need those prayers here. We love hearing that you're praying for us. It is deep joy for us to hear. And we want you to know that we, by God's grace, will continue to be ready to share our whole lives with you and the gospel itself. Let us pray. Father, we give you great praise for your work of grace for the life of the Apostle Paul and his missionary team. And we give you thanks this morning for your great grace that is at work through the gospel ministers here, the pastors and elders who love this church. Thank you, Father, for the feelings of being affectionately desirous for this congregation. Father, we love them so much. You love them so much. God, would you help us all continue to follow you faithfully and to walk out these characteristics in our life in increasing measure for the sake of your son's name. Amen.